A quick disclaimer, this episode does discuss suicide. If you are in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the crisis text line by texting T-A-L-K-TALK to 741-741. Suicide contagion has been shown in research, so I recommend caution before listening to this episode. In 2018, 21-year-old Brandon Caserta took his own life, and how he did it was a message to the Navy. Following his death, Brandon's parents have made it their mission to stop hazing, bullying, and abuse in the military, making it easier to hold those in charge accountable. And this raises a question that has been asked a number of times in the true crime community. Can someone be held criminally responsible if their actions led to someone's suicide? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've listened before, welcome back. I'm going to take a quick minute to let you know that this week's Get Vocal live stream on Thursday night will be all about the J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan case. There have been a lot of updates. There is a new Dateline episode coming out on the case this week. And it was requested by Christy and Katie that we have some more discussion on the live streams. But this time, I'm going to just be the moderator. The way Get Vocal works is that there are four spots to be on screen, and people can hop on and off by clicking the Grab This Spot button. So that's basically what we're going to do. I'm going to have you guys hop on and off to give your viewpoints, your opinions, answer questions, and just talk to me directly. You can still opt to just remain typing in the chat or on the Facebook Live comment section, but this is a chance to discuss the case face-to-face with those who want that option. You do need to have a Get Vocal account to be on the screen, but it is completely free, and you can use your phone or laptop. I will leave links and everything else in the show notes and, of course, on social media. Okay, so let's get to today's episode. It is on a broad topic that I have never covered before. Charging people criminally if they bully or abuse someone to the point they end their life. As a topic, it was recommended back when I was creating the old podcast Insight, but I have always shied away from it because if I'm being 100% real with you, I don't know how I feel about it. I was just really avoiding a hot true crime topic because I'm just still in that space of forming my opinion on it. But maybe it's better that way because I will be presenting you with what happened without having a strong opinion or bias or agenda or trying to convince you of anything because I haven't even convinced myself of anything. 
So let's get into the case of Brandon Caserta, a 21-year-old who was bullied and abused in the military. I want to thank his parents for talking to me and providing me with the documents from their Freedom of Information Act request. Brandon's parents told me he was an easy kid to raise. He was happy-go-lucky. He was always smiling. He was the type of person who excelled at everything he tried. He was a black belt in karate. He played sports year-round. And he really held to these karate principles he had learned of honor, respect, patience, and kindness. Brandon's father, Patrick, is retired from the Navy himself. Of his 22 years of service, a good portion was spent as a career counselor. But when Brandon announced in high school that he wanted to join the Navy, his parents were not thrilled. They had a more traditional college-than-career path in mind for him, and they had the money to pay for his college. But Brandon assured them that the reason he was going into the Navy wasn't for a GI Bill or a military career even. He wanted eventually to become a police officer. Brandon even knew what he wanted to do as a police officer. He wanted to do special training and be on the SWAT team. The military would give him a leg up in this training. And within the Navy, he set his sights very high. He wanted to be a Navy SEAL. His parents knew that they had two options, support Brandon or not support him. But the end result would be the same. After high school, he would enlist with or without their permission. So they opted to support him. Just qualifying to train as a SEAL requires a lot, so his dad bought him the type of stuff they use in SEALs training so he could work it into his regular swim workouts. And it worked. Brandon took the SEALs physical exam with great times, times that improved in the months before he left for basic training. And his aptitude test scores were plenty high enough that he was accepted into the SEALs program. Once in the first school for specifically becoming a SEAL, things were rigorous. And rigorous is probably an understatement. They were grueling. But Brandon kept up in the first two to three weeks until a really bad pain in his leg developed. He went to medical and they diagnosed him with shin splints. Having been an athlete growing up, Brandon knew what shin splints felt like, and this was not the same. So he went back to medical and said he did not think it was shin splints. He asked for an x-ray, and medical denied it. They stuck with their initial diagnosis. So one day, Brandon was out training, and they are doing the thing where they carry a boat or a raft over their heads and run. I'm not a military person, obviously, so I'm sure there's an actual word for this exercise. I mean, if you're canoeing or if you're on a float trip, it's called portaging. So maybe that gives you a picture of what I'm talking about. Anyway, Brendan was running with everyone else when he collapsed. He managed to get back on his feet in spite of the pain in his leg, 
and he started running again. And he collapsed again, this time in excruciating pain, and he couldn't get back up. The guys he was training with put him in the back of the pickup truck and drove him to the bell. The bell is a way for an in-training seal to basically tap out. Four out of five SEALs trainees do not complete the program. If they ring the bell, they are voluntarily leaving their training and are immediately transferred to a nearby base. At the bell, Brandon was being told to ring it, and he refused. They told him to ring the bell because he was clearly not up to this, and he still said no. So someone on the truck rang the bell, said Brandon did it, and he was moved to the other base. And I'm not sure if you noticed that in all of this, I did not mention that he was taken to medical, seeing as he could barely walk and had just collapsed twice. And that's because he wasn't taken there. It wasn't until he got to the other base that Brandon took himself to medical, and he finally got an x-ray. The x-ray showed he had broken his tibia in multiple places. It was not shin splints, it was actually broken. Brandon had been training on a broken leg. On top of that, he also had pneumonia, which he hadn't even really complained about, but it might explain why he finally did collapse. Because of the circumstances of how Brandon had quote-unquote washed out of SEALs training, his dad Patrick, who again was a career counselor with the Navy for 15 years, knew Brandon had a good chance at getting back into the program after he recovered. But Brandon decided against this. He was worried that he would be treated more harshly by the instructors if he pushed it, making it even less likely he'd make it through and become a SEAL. This was May 2016 when Brandon left the Navy SEALs training and something else happened in the program the very day Brandon left. And it may have influenced his decision. Derek Loveless, a 21-year-old man who was in the SEALs training program, drowned. For some reason, Derek was singled out during a swim exercise by the instructors. He was struggling as he swam with his boots and whatever else on him. And as he struggled, the instructors taunted him. They splashed at him. And at least two times, they pushed his head under the water. That is against the rules, particularly for this exercise. This entire thing was caught on video as well as confirmed by witnesses. Unable to surface long enough to take a breath, Derek lost consciousness. He was pulled from the pool, unresponsive, and later died. The death was ruled a homicide by drowning, not an accident. Did Brandon really want to go back to that environment with the label of having already failed once? I doubt it. 
So now Brandon was basically jobless in the Navy, and he was given 30 minutes to choose a new one. This is called the re-rate process. But he didn't have the full list of options he would have had if he was first enlisting. In spite of his scores on his aptitude test, Brandon was only given a handful of options, and most were not within the range usually encouraged for those with high scores. At the time, this was standard for people who left the SEALs program. You have 30 minutes to pick your future from limited options. Brandon used his half an hour to call his dad and ask for advice. His dad said that the only reasonable option from those choices was to become an aviation electrician. So Brandon was sent from SEALs training in San Diego to Pensacola, Florida for four months of school. Then in November, he was moved to Virginia for additional training specific to the helicopters he would be working on. And when he finished school, he joined the Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 28 in Virginia at the end of January, beginning of February 2017. And you can say this was the start of the downhill. The day Brandon joined the group, his lead petty officer, who was his immediate supervisor, called him a Bud's Dud, meaning someone who failed out of the SEALs program during the first leg of schooling. As a passing jab, this wouldn't seem like a big deal, but this type of taunting continued with this LPO, who I will call Brown. That's not his name, but the Navy has redacted it from the documents they released, so I'll avoid using the real name since it has not been officially released. Making fun of Brandon for leaving SEALs training from this day one really set the tone for all interactions with LPO Brown. From the outside, this sounds so ridiculous to me. Most people do not even qualify for SEAL school, and I'm going to assume LPO Brown is among them. So this would basically be like me making fun of someone for dropping out of Yale when I couldn't have even gotten in. It's so bizarre. And maybe it's that insecurity on Brown's part that made him seemingly zero in on Brandon as a target for taunting and mocking and verbal abuse. He outranked Brandon, but he possibly may have known that his abilities didn't measure up to Brandon. I know people who have dealt with this at work in the civilian world, whether they're a nurse who is smarter than the charge nurse, or they are a designer who is more artistically talented than the art director. It happens, but good leaders overcome it. It's not like Brown was all that great of a leader to anyone else either. He regularly screamed at, cursed, name-called, and otherwise verbally berated those working under him. He would fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. One person said his fits 
were worse than those of a toddler. Okay, so we've all seen those military movies. We have the image of the drill sergeant screaming in people's faces in our head. The military is supposed to be tough, and this is not entirely unexpected. Military leadership is authoritarian. But this was outside the bounds, even for the Navy, which we will get to in a minute. So Brown was sent on deployment in August 2017, which was good news for Brandon because he did not deploy with him. So he was looking at a respite from this abusive situation. Even better news came while Brown was gone. In October 2017, Brandon had gotten approved for a transfer he requested to Air Crewman School. He was scheduled to leave in February 2018. So it looked like any further time with Brown as his LPO, as his direct supervisor, would be fleeting if it happened at all. But then two things happened that put Brown and Brandon back in the same space, and both things happened in November. The first was that Brandon was riding his bike and had an accident where he broke his collarbone. So his orders to go to air crewman school were canceled. It's not clear to me why they wouldn't send him to school, even with the broken collarbone still healing, because they sent him to the electrician school with a broken leg and pneumonia. So I'm not sure why this specific one was a deal breaker, but it is what they decided. Brandon was told, though, that as soon as he was cleared by the doctor to return to full duty, they would get the orders back in, and he would leave in two to three weeks. So we have Brandon still with the same squadron for a little bit longer, or so he thought. Now, the second thing that happened was Brown coming back from deployment, not because it ended, but because he got kicked off. Remember when I said Brown's behavior was outside the bounds, even for the Navy? I can say that with confidence, since his verbally abusive behavior to subordinates got him sent back from deployment early. In the report, they called his behavior intolerable and unprofessional. But, believing in second chances apparently, Brown was given anger management allegedly a bit more supervision, and then put back in charge of the squadron in Virginia. He was reprimanded again in January 2018 for similar behavioral and anger issues that got him kicked off deployment, but he was again allowed to stay in his position of lead petty officer in charge of others, in spite of them knowing the significant deficits in his leadership ability. When Brown came back, Brandon was still on light duty waiting on his collarbone to heal. They had Brandon working in the Dunk, which is basically a snack bar, and paused his progress on his work towards a qualification during that time. 
I've made it clear I'm not a military person, I'm not a Navy person, so let me give you just the basic gist of this. Brandon was going to be switching jobs as soon as his collarbone was healed, but his current command was still expecting him to finish his plane captain's qualification, which is something he would not need when he moved to the new job. But the rationale was that in order to move to any new program, you need to be meeting expectations in your current one. And meeting expectations was getting this plain captain's qualification. When Brandon broke his collarbone, he was about three quarters of the way through it, and he didn't work as much on it while he was on light duty. In March 2018, when Brandon was healed up and medically cleared from his broken collarbone, he went to get his orders resubmitted or whatever that process was so he could go to Air Crewman School. And they told him no, or at least not yet. They said he still needed to finish the plane captain's qualification. Since he was 72% of the way through it, it might not seem like a huge deal, except that while he was on light duty, his scores were reset. Reset to zero. He had to do every single thing and work on the things he already did to get approved for air crewman school before he could get his new orders. Beyond that, this is something he had to do in his spare time after he worked his usual full shift. And of course, this was while he was under the charming command of LPO Brown. If this was a job in the civilian world, I mean, how many of us would walk out or go to HR or check even with our local labor board? on these reset qualifications, but in the military, you don't have those options. So Brandon was feeling very stuck, and stuck in the situation where he could not get away from this person who was bullying him. And then command came down with another requirement of Brandon. He had to start driving. Driving on the flight line and taking a rotation as duty driver was a job on his squadron and one Brandon did not have to do because he told them he did not have a driver's license. And we are about to get into semantics here. Brandon did not currently have a driver's license. He took driver's ed and he took his driving test and he got a license. This was about four years before this point, so he was still a teenager. As soon as Brandon took that driving test, he never drove again. He had too much anxiety around driving, and he got the license at the encouragement of his parents. And when I say he never drove after getting his license, I mean it. He was never added to his parents' car insurance because they agreed he would get the license as an ID, and he'd have it in the event he ever had to drive in an emergency, but he wouldn't actually have to drive. His parents had just assumed that Brandon would hit a point as an adult where he needed to drive, and he would 
do what he needed to to get over this anxiety then. Or maybe he wouldn't, and he would just figure it out the way many unlicensed people do. Brandon had the physical capability to bike miles and miles and miles, and the availability of ride-sharing programs like Uber and Lyft, he may never have hit the point where he felt he needed a license. Once Brandon enlisted and had a military ID to use, he stopped even carrying his old driver's license around since he didn't need it. He actually didn't even know where it was, and the address had never been updated, so it was invalid anyway. Arizona gives you 10 days to update your address with the DMV, and he never did, even though he and his parents had moved. So when Brandon told Command that he didn't have a driver's license, he meant he physically did not have one. And the one he had that was maybe in a drawer, maybe lost in a move, that one wasn't even valid. Well, someone in command did a search of an Arizona database and found that Brandon had gotten his driver's license at one point. There was really no reason to search that database unless they were trying to catch Brandon in what they thought was a lie. So this already seems very targeted. Brandon was confronted about the driver's license, and he repeated that he didn't have a license. When he was told they found the record of his old driver's license, he said he'd have his dad look for it, but he didn't know where it was. Then, command made Brandon get out his debit card so they could use it to order him a replacement driver's license with the intention of forcing him to drive. And then on June 22nd, they referred Brandon to a disciplinary review board for hiding the fact he had a license, even though the driver's license was not a requirement for his job. A later investigation showed that personnel who knew Brandon did not think he was being deceptive when he said he didn't have a license. So why is Brandon having a disciplinary review board over semantics? I think if we back up a couple of days, we will see the real reason. Four days before Brandon was referred to the disciplinary review board, he was supposed to go to a medical appointment to get labs done. It was a requirement for his air crewman school transfer. LPO Brown told him he couldn't go. He didn't tell him with enough advance notice, and Brown couldn't spare a driver to take Brandon to the appointment. Brandon had regularly arranged his own rides if he needed to go somewhere off base. So it's not clear why there was an assumption Brandon needed a ride from someone busy doing something else. Brandon had, in the past, canceled and rescheduled appointments when things got busy on base, so he wasn't the type who expected everything to be dropped for him to get a ride. Brandon believed he had given Brown enough advanced notice of this appointment, so he went to someone else 
about being denied permission to go to his medical appointment. He basically went over LPO Brown's head. This person had taken Brown's side and said he needed to give more advance notice of appointments and that he needed to prioritize his plane captain's qualification over the air crewman stuff anyway. When Brandon told his dad Patrick about what happened, Patrick called Brandon's career counselor and left a message. At first, you may wonder why a father was calling for his adult son, but let's remember this was his job. He was a career counselor in the Navy, and he was becoming increasingly concerned about how Brandon was being treated, particularly about being denied permission to go to a scheduled medical appointment, and having his air crewman school repeatedly delayed. Patrick got a call back from a master chief, and they discussed Brandon's career path in the Navy. And from what Patrick gathered, they were wanting Brandon to get his plane captain's qualification so he could be deployed, which meant they did not intend to send him to air crewman school. So let's just sum up what just happened. Four days before someone decided to look up to see if Brandon had a driver's license and then referred him to a disciplinary review board over it, Brandon had gone over his LPO's head to essentially complain about being denied his medical appointment, and then he went to his father, who then called someone higher up to also discuss it. And I don't think this timing is a coincidence. Another thing that makes me think that is that Brandon also told his father in a text that he was being sent to the review board for malingering, which refers back to a medical issue, which makes me think this is about that medical appointment. But the official investigation showed that it was just for the driver's license issue on paper. What Brandon was told and what was documented were not the same thing. I am sure the situation where Brandon advocated for himself by going up the chain and then getting retaliated against by being referred to this review board sent a very clear message to him. There was really nothing he could do or say that would change anything in the military. He would still be under LPO Brown, who berated him, made fun of him, bullied him, and verbally abused him. And when he tried to get help outside of LPO Brown, he got referred to a disciplinary review board. Over the weekend of June 23rd and 24th, right after being referred to the disciplinary review board, Brandon sent some texts and emails. Two notable emails were to friends who were deployed. In these emails, Brandon said that he wouldn't be there when they got back. At the time, this phrasing didn't alarm them because Brandon had been trying, as I've mentioned several times, to leave the squadron. So not being there when they got back was his goal. But in light of what came next, the Navy investigators believe these were goodbye emails. On the morning of June 25th, Brandon reported for work in the morning, just as usual. Around 3 p.m., he left the job telling people he was hungry and was going to get something to eat. 
For the next 40 minutes, there is no accounting of where he was. He didn't eat, and he didn't leave the area as far as we can tell. At 3.42, Brandon walked out on the flight line, which is where the aircraft are parked while undergoing maintenance. He told a plane captain, I'm sorry you have to see this, before he took his life by jumping into the rear tail rotor of a helicopter. Brandon's decision to do this publicly, on the flight line, with the helicopter, in full view of the Navy, including their security cameras, was a message. While there is no one cause to someone's decision to take their life, and it would be irresponsible for me to say that, Brandon wanted the Navy to know that he held them responsible. At the very time Brandon took his life, Patrick was on the phone with the Master Chief. This was not even their first phone call of the day. Patrick initially called to tell the Navy that he was going to represent Brandon at the disciplinary council and not to hold it until he could fly out there to Virginia, which he was planning to do the next day. The Master Chief told Patrick that he would have to call him back, and in the 30 minutes between when they hung up and the Master Chief called again, Patrick and Brandon's mother, Terry, got a text from Brandon that just said, just know that I love you. It's while Patrick and the Master Chief were on the phone again that Patrick heard him say, what? And then repeat that, and then I've got to go. He hung up the phone, and Patrick thought it was very odd, but he went about his day. He texted Brandon to tell him about the phone call, but what the family did not know at that time was that Brandon was already dead. They found out the usual way military families are notified, in person. Because of their video doorbell, the Casertas knew they were getting bad news when they watched the uniformed men approach their front door. They opened the door, but initially refused to let the men in. That immediate knee-jerk denial. If they didn't let them in, if they couldn't notify, this was not actually happening. Of course, they eventually let them in and learned how Brandon died. They also found out that Brandon had left multiple notes to different people. In the note to his parents, Brandon wrote that he wanted them to go after the re-rate process, which is what happens when you have to change courses, like Brandon did when he left the SEALs program. It was that process that put him under LPO Brown. Brandon wrote that the Navy had ruined his life. His notes to his friends in the squadron were similar to the one he left for his parents, and he said he hoped his death made changes in the command that would make their lives easier. After Brandon's death, an investigation was conducted by the Navy. Although it was ruled a suicide and that was not in question, there were other things that were in question. 
One thing they looked into was how did no one see the signs that Brandon was suicidal prior to this? But for the sake of our conversation on the role of bullying on suicide, and if charges should or could be leveled, we are just going to focus on that part of the investigation, the investigation into LPO Brown's abuse and bullying. Obviously, the Navy already knew he had anger management issues. He had been kicked off a deployment for it and sent to anger management classes. So the question is, did they know his abuse continued? And if they didn't, in my view, they should have. In April or May 2018, anonymous leadership surveys were sent in where multiple people reported that LPO Brown's anger issues and poor leadership towards his subordinates and his verbal abuse had continued. We also know that in June 2018, shortly before Brandon took his life, an anonymous letter was left in the commanding officer's suggestion box, outlining examples of Brown's ongoing verbal abuse and out-of-control temper. We know about this anonymous letter because Brandon was the one who wrote it. He took a picture of it with his cell phone for his own records. At the end of it, he wrote, This is my last attempt at hope for a change either in him or preferably a different LPO. My personal opinion is that Brandon wrote this after he realized he was not getting out of the squadron and was facing another several months or even a year under the leadership of LPO Brown. His last hope, as he stated, was to get Brown moved. So what happened to make Brandon lose this last hope he expressed in the letter? The answer to that may be in the 40 minutes he was unaccounted for on that day he died. We don't know what happened. We don't know why Brandon got up that morning, went to work like usual, and then left the job partway through the day. We know Patrick talked to the Master Chief, and there was a 30-minute gap between the phone calls that overlaps this 40 minutes that we don't know where Brandon was. Was something said in that time, either by LPO Brown or the Master Chief, to Brandon? There is a possible witness who said Brown and Brandon were arguing that day, but whether it's related or not, we don't know. The investigation, frankly, does not really make a huge attempt to answer this 40-minute gap or this possible trigger, because they concluded that Brandon's decision to take his life was made before this time frame. There are a few things he did in preparation. He wrote those several-page notes, which were possibly more than he could have done in 40 minutes. He also packaged up some items and left them on a friend's desk, which, honestly, he could have done that in the 40 minutes. But for some reason, the investigator believes he did it in the morning before he even went to work. Plus, Brandon's notes did indicate prior suicidal ideation. But most people who experience suicidal ideation do not carry through, 
and that includes people who begin making plans. So just because Brandon did start making preparations before this does not mean there was no trigger in that 40-minute time. And to say these preparations rule that out is showing a lack of understanding about suicide and suicidal ideation. The family would have liked for the investigator to have made more of an attempt to answer this. The investigation ultimately concluded that there were a number of stressors in Brandon's life, which is fair, but it did not entirely absolve LPO Brown. It said that Brown's noted belligerence, vulgarity, and brash leadership was likely a significant contributing factor in Brandon's decision to take his own life. That is straight from the investigation report. And if you think Brandon's death was a wake-up call for Brown, you would be wrong. He was transferred days after Brandon's death, after he was overheard making disparaging remarks about Brandon. Even after Brandon died, it did not stop. The investigator wrote that there was sufficient evidence to take Brown to Captain's Mast for violating the rules against cruelty and maltreatment. Captain's Mast is a non-judicial process that involves an inquiry into the offense, a hearing to allow the accused to defend themselves, and then they can rule to issue a punishment, no punishment, or even refer the matter to a full court-martial. This is not a trial, and it's generally reserved for more minor infractions than you would see at a court-martial. However, even though the investigator found that there was evidence for a mast, he recommended against it for reasons I do not understand. It's most likely because I'm not in the Navy and don't know the rules around a captain's mast, but he basically is saying that a captain's mast would take too long. So he instead recommended Brown be transferred with a declining evaluation, which is not exactly what you would consider a punishment. The way the military works is completely different than the civilian world, and it makes it hard to even draw comparisons. The military is also very guarded with their information, so we don't have a lot of readily available data on military suicides and how many have been linked, like Brandon's, to a contributing factor of bullying from within the military. So let's look at some cases from outside the military where the investigation ruled that someone's actions were a significant contributing factor in someone else's suicide, and see, do we see charges being brought? And the answer is sometimes. We have the very well-known case of Conrad Roy, who took his own life in July 2014. His friend, 17-year-old Michelle Carter, had been encouraging him to do so. She was charged with involuntary manslaughter, which many people think was too light of a charge. In the state they were in, Massachusetts, involuntary manslaughter is unintentionally causing the death of someone else. 
when engaging in reckless conduct or serious battery. Some felt the encouraging of Conrad to suicide was more than just reckless, and his death certainly wasn't an unintentional outcome, but rather what Michelle intended to happen. This case really hinged on something Michelle told another person. She texted that person that she could have stopped Conrad. She claimed that she was on the phone with him, and Conrad expressed hesitancy and fear over going through with taking his life, and Michelle told him to go through with it, and he did. But this isn't quite the same because Michelle and Conrad's interactions were not her bullying him until he felt living wasn't worth it anymore. It's just the most well-known case where someone was charged with a homicide outside of assisted suicide of terminally ill people, which is another story altogether. Speaking more directly to charges brought in bullying cases, we don't see anything as serious as murder or manslaughter. The charges are generally confined to the actions of the people prior to the death, not related to the death directly, if that makes sense. For instance, in September 2013, a 12-year-old named Rebecca Sedwick took her own life after she experienced bullying, both in-person bullying and cyberbullying. Charges were brought against two girls, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. But these charges were for aggravated stalking, the behavior they engaged in prior to Rebecca's death. Charges were later dropped. Also in 2013, 17-year-old Retea Parsons took her own life after an alleged rape, which was photographed, and the picture passed around, which led to extreme bullying. The young men at the center of this eventually pleaded out to child pornography charges for having and distributing the image but nothing related directly to Retea's death. And we don't have a lot of reported situations for those who are not still minors, those who are not in middle school or high school. There are a few, and the one I found where there were charges brought is Tyler Clemente, who was a college freshman who took his own life when his roommate purposely set up his webcam to remotely view Tyler kissing another man and then outed him publicly. The charges were related to illegally recording someone. So here we are, we're holding 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 18-year-olds criminally responsible for abuse, bullying, harassment, and stalking. So why are we not holding a grown man put into a position of authority over people like L.P.O. Brown. And are these charges even appropriate? Should we start looking at people for manslaughter charges when their actions are contributing factors in someone's suicide? What the Casertas are looking for in this case is accountability. Patrick said that the military has had 250 years to change on their own, and they have opted not to. So they're asking Congress, which is really the only entity that the military truly answers to, to do something. They are trying to get the Brandon Act in front of Congress, and this would allow service members to safely seek help with issues without fearing retaliation like Brandon experienced. 
They would simply have to say, I need to talk to someone about the Brandon Act, and they would be immediately referred to medical or family services, no questions asked. And this can be anything from abusive leadership like Brandon was dealing with, but also issues with mental health, suicidal ideation, addiction issues, really anything that the civilian population would not have to go to their boss to get permission for. We don't have to go to our company when we're dealing with issues. We can get help outside of work. What they're looking for with the Brandon Act is to basically allow the military to do the same. There would be no consequences for invoking the Brandon Act when they return to duty, and it would not be reflected in their evaluations. More specifically to Brandon's case, the Brandon Act would give the FBI, an outside agency, the authority to investigate the military. Should there be reason to believe a suicide was directly connected to harassment or bullying. Those who could be held accountable would be those who participated in the bullying or hazing or harassment, and those in command who knew about it and looked the other way. They could lose rank or even be tried criminally. I will leave a link to the change.org petition in the show notes, as well as the website to all the information on the Brandon Act, so you can look into it more. I am interested to hear what you think about the charges related to someone taking their own life. Do you think bullying and harassment should be charged, or should the courts go for murder or manslaughter charges, or neither? Reach out on social media or through the contact section on my website and let me know your thoughts on this. Due to the nature of this topic, I do not feel comfortable hosting a live stream discussing it. I'm not an expert, and I have reached out to get input and information so I could present this episode responsibly. It's just not something I feel comfortable talking about on a live stream where I can't pause and fact check myself, so I'd much rather discuss this where I can gather my thoughts in writing to have these conversations. And with this episode, I do not want to leave anyone with the impression that these changes and this conversation about charging people related to a suicide is only possible through Brandon's death. We could have the Brandon Act and hold people accountable for abuse and bullying and have Brandon alive today. His parents were willing and ready to fight for him in life. This was not a wake-up call for them. They were already working to help him literally the moment he died. There is another way, and if you begin to think there isn't, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741741. 741.